Good to, good to see you this evening. And tonight we're going to talk about two different views, two different attitudes that uh, plague us, two different attitudes that are not right in the sight of God. One is that we're too strong to lose. We are in control, and we don't have to be concerned about life. The other view is that we're too weak to win. We have our doubts. We don't know where to turn. And both of these views have one thing in common. Learning about them and the problem with them helps us understand that we depend, we depend upon God for our guidance in this life. And without him, we would not be. Well, let's talk about that first view that I mentioned. I'm too strong to lose. And I take you to Exodus, the fifth chapter at verse one. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a fast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Do you think Pharaoh thought that he was in control? That he was the ruler of Egypt? He had things in hand. And things were all were well with him, and uh, he, he didn't need to be concerned about this God of Israel that Moses and Aaron were telling him about. And, of course, that story lasts for quite a while here in Exodus, and we'll not go through all the details of that, of course. But you remember, in order to convince Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go, God brought ten different plagues against the Egyptians, and they did not affect the Israelites. The Israelites lived in Goshen, and the Lord protected them, but he did not protect the Egyptians. And, of course, different times, Pharaoh seemed to be giving in, and he was going to let them go, but then after he would try to make some kind of proposition with them, then he would change his mind and he's decided he was going to keep them. Well, if you remember, the last plague that was brought against the Egyptians was the death of their firstborn, people and animals. You think about that. Think about what a cry went up in Egypt that night at midnight when there was a death in every home in Egypt. You know, sometimes things happen in our country, and storms, and earthquakes, different kinds of tragedies, shootings and so forth, where there are a number of people 
who lose their lives because of that. But, for instance, there's never been, so far as I know, there's never been one incident in which there was a death in every house in these United States of America. What an impact that would have upon the people. Well, by the time they'd gone through all of these plagues, especially after this one, not only Pharaoh, but all the people of Egypt evidently were ready for the Israelites to go and leave their country. Egypt was losing their slaves. They had made slaves of the children of Israel. They're going to lose them, but now after all this has happened, <clears throat> Pharaoh is learning that he is not in full control. And of course, there's many things, many parts of that story. That's, uh, that's very interesting, of course. In chapter 12, or uh, chapter 11, I believe it is. No, chapter 12, that's right. You remember that night, he had told the children of Israel to kill the Passover lamb and to sprinkle the blood on the doorpost and the lentils of their houses. That when the, uh, when the Lord passed over the Egypt that night, if they had that blood on the doorpost and the lintels of their houses like he had instructed, they would not lose their firstborn. But the Egyptians, of course, did not believe in that. Pharaoh thought he was in control. He did not depend upon the Lord. He didn't think. But as a result, the firstborn, there was a firstborn in every family whose life was taken. That had no doubt a great impact upon the Egyptians. And that story, even to this day, has great impact upon us. Another instance of this kind, similar to that, that we have in Second Kings, Second Kings, the eighteenth chapter. Second Kings, well, I'll get to it here in a minute. Where are you? Yes, there it is. Second Kings, the eighteenth chapter. This is where Sennacherib, Sennacherib, the emperor of the king of the Assyrian kingdom had conquered all the neighboring peoples of the children of Israel, the na their neighboring nations. And they came to Jerusalem and demanded that they surrender the city of Jerusalem to the Assyrians. And he sent his servants, those in charge under him, to warn the people of Israel. And he told them, don't listen to Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the king of Israel at the time. Don't listen to him. 
Look at the fact that we've already taken the, all these other people, all these other nations around you. Their gods could not deliver them. And furthermore, he said, you know, Hezekiah's destroyed all of the all of your gods. The false gods that the idolatrous gods that the people of Israel had even set up. It says, look, Hezekiah's taken away your gods. And how how can you be delivered from us? Well, the end of that story is. that Hezekiah and the people went to Isaiah. Isaiah was the prophet at the time. And I asked Isaiah to approach God about this matter. And he did. And it's interesting what he told them. He told them that they were not to be concerned about this king, Sennacherib, that uh, he would not, uh, he would not be able to conquer them. And so we're told the end of the story in chapter 19, at verse 35, and it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. You think about that. 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were, there were the corpse, all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who had made his great boast and who had tried to convince the Israelites, Hezekiah and Isaiah, tried to convince them that there was no way that they could succeed against him. He had already conquered all these peoples around him and he had now come to Jerusalem to conquer them. And now Sennacherib has lost 185,000 soldiers. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple. Well, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home and remained at Nineveh. Remember, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, that his sons, Adremelech and Sherezer, struck him down with the sword. And they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Izar Hedon, his son, reigned in his place. So this king Sennacherib, who was so boastful, and who thought he was in control, just like Pharaoh in the other case, he didn't have nearly as much control as he thought he had. So, we are told in the New Testament, in such passages as 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, that 
we had better be warned by these kind of... In fact, Paul tells us in the 15th chapter at verse 4 of Romans that the things that were written before time were written for our learning. And here's what Paul says more about it in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our, all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and were all baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and ate the same spiritual food, and all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But, and there's a, that word, but. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. Why not? For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters as some of them, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That was in connection with the worshiping of the idol that Aaron put up when the children of Israel said, Make us a God that may go before us. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. That was another Old Testament story. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. You remember the snake bites of the, the folks, and God told Moses to make a brass serpent, bronze serpent, and put it up and tell the people if they'll come and look at that serpent, they will be healed of their snake bites. But there was a number of them that died before of course, that was done. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now listen to this. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon the, upon the ends of the ages upon whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. Did uh, Pharaoh thought he, did he think he, did he think he st stood? Did Sennacherib think he stood and everything was well? Both of them thought things were well with them until they had to deal with the true God of heaven. And they were unwilling to listen to them and they suffered the consequences of it. But that's all we're told by the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians. That's all to teach us that we had better realize how much we depend upon God. <clears throat> In 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, at verses 8 and 9, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, Seeking whom he may devour. What are we supposed to do about it? Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your 
brotherhood in the world. May, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. How is all of that coming about? By recognizing God, the God of all grace, who has called us to eternal glory in Christ, in Christ Jesus. So on the one hand, we should never think, well, we're in control. We know what we're supposed to do. We don't have to listen to what God says. We don't have to believe in this God that the Bible presents. And there are many people in our society today that have that attitude about it. But there will come a reckoning day. And so we must, we must realize how much we depend upon God. But that's not only true from that side, it's true from the other view, viewpoint also. The one that says, well, I don't know how I'm going to make it. I'm too weak to win. And this was the attitude that we see demonstrated in the scriptures. In the story of the Israelites, in Numbers, the 13th and 14th chapters, Numbers chapter 13 and 14. You remember when they left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea? And they came to the entrance into, near to the entrance into the land of Canaan. The, can the land that they were supposed to possess. The land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before them. This was the promise of God. But all the children of Israel murmured against Moses. This is in Exodus 14. And against Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? And our wives and children, that our wives and children should be victims, should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt into slavery. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among uh, those who had uh, spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out, spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this, into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. 
Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land. For they are our bread, their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What was the response of the children, of these people of Israel? And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Stone who? Joshua and Caleb. And those who were exhorting them to do, to, to be faithful to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe with all the signs which I have performed among them? And so God decrees what's going to happen to them. Verse 26 of the 14th chapter, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings which the children of Israel murmur against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have murmured against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, your little children, those under 20 years old, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, each for each day, you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. So, they said, we can't do this. And they did not depend upon the Lord to do it. They turned against the Lord. They said, let us return to Egypt. Let us choose us a leader and return to Egypt. But it was God who had promised them this land. It was God. Think about it. It was God who had delivered them, sent the ten plagues upon them while they were still in Egypt. It was God who delivered them across the sea, the Red Sea, in order to escape from the Egyptians when they left the country. It was God who gave them food miraculously from heaven each day and each evening. It was God who gave them water when they were thirsty. And that was made obvious to them that these miracles were performed 
in their presence to prove to them that God was on their side. They had witnessed all of this. And now God is telling them to go in and possess this land, and I'll be with you. As he had promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're turning their backs on the promises God made to the fathers. They're turning back their back on the assurance that Moses and Aaron, the children of Israel, at this time are telling them and encouraging them to do. It's interesting, though, that after the word came to them, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning, went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are. And we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. Then Moses said, Now why do you transgress the commandment of the Lord? For this will not succeed. But they presumed to go up, verse 44, They presumed to go up to the mountaintop, nevertheless, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwelt in that mountain, came down and attacked them, and drove them back as far as Hormah. So, you see these people who did not trust in the Lord. They did not trust in themselves even that they could go in and possess this land from these people. They believed the report of the ten spies who gave a evil report, only Joshua and Caleb of the 12 spies that had been sent out, one spy from each tribe of Israel, they had been sent out to spy out the land. They came home with a good report about the land, about the productiveness of it, about the kind of fruit that was grown and the crops that were done, God is promising it to them. They could have this land that did not, that they would not have to pay for. It would be given to them. But they said, we're, we're too weak, we can't do this. Well, but their problem was they didn't trust in the Lord. They couldn't do it on their own, of course. But they didn't trust in the Lord to help them do this. In 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, the Apostle Paul says something about this. 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. He says something about this principle that we're studying about now. In the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, beginning at verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure, Paul says, by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above nature, above measure. 
concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. What? That this thorn in the flesh might depart from him. He prayed for that three times. And he said to me, God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What's he telling us? We don't just, we don't depend upon our own strength. God is our strength. The Lord Jesus Christ is our strength. And that's what he's emphasizing here. And that's one of the things that shows the power of God. What if we were able on our own to show great strength? How would that help people believe in God? But when we admit that we cannot do it on our own, that we must follow God and we must do what he says, and you could apply that in a multitude of ways. People say, I just do not understand how that a person going down in a pool of water and being baptized in water, being buried in water and being raised from that grave of water, how that could save a person. Well, apart from God, it couldn't. Apart from what Jesus did for us, it couldn't. Because we're not the ones that's making the results of that happen. It's God who promised that. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's God's promise if we from the heart will obey that. It's the same principle with regard to all of God's commands. The strength that we have is not because of our own strength, but because of the strength that God and Jesus Christ are able to give to us. And that's what he's saying in this. He said, the Lord explained to me that you don't have to have these thorns delivered, delivered taken away from you, this thorn in the flesh. You don't have to have that taken away for you to be effective and for you to demonstrate the power of God. Power is in the word. The power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in mankind, not even what we do. That's why Paul in Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 8 and 9 said, For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And of course, people misuse that expression, not of works. See there, Leon, they'll say, the Bible tells us we don't have to do anything to be saved. No, that's not what that verse says. For one thing, it tells us we must believe. And that is a work. 
That is a work that God has commanded of us. God doesn't do the believing for us. He has revealed himself to us for us to believe what he tells us. Yes, and uh, Jesus, when he was asked in John the 6th chapter, what must we do that we may work the works of God? What did Jesus, how did he answer that? This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. Somebody says, yes, that says it's a work of God. But that doesn't mean it's a work that God does for us. It's a work that God has commanded us. It's something that we must do. For with the heart, Romans 10, verse 10, for with the heart man believes, not God, but man believes unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So, what is God's grace? What does that include? It includes everything that God has done for us, for our salvation. One day it hit me, well, you know, if salvation by faith only, as people want to teach sometimes, if salvation by faith only, is, that's the only thing you have to do. Why wouldn't you say, well, by grace only by grace. It's not by the death of Jesus Christ. It might, it's not by anything anybody did. It's just by grace, the grace of God. But no, everybody will admit that the grace of God includes the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. In other words, the grace of God includes everything that God has done for us, for our salvation. On the other hand, for by grace are you saved through faith. Faith includes everything that he tells us to do. And again, let me point out to us, even after we become Christians, after we have believed in Christ, repented of our sins, confessed our faith in Jesus, and been buried in water for the forgiveness of sin, for the remission of sins, even after that, do we not still continue to need God's grace? Certainly so. Why? Because... We're not in a situation where we don't ever sin anymore. We, we are still capable of sin after we become Christians, after we obey the gospel. Well, does the New Testament how what we're to do about that? We have an example of it in Acts 8. Where the people of Samaria are, where Simon... The one who had been a sorcerer, he believed and was baptized. Who said that? The Holy Spirit guided Luke, the writer of the book, to write that down. You'd have to deny the Word of God. You'd have to deny the Holy Spirit to deny that he believed and was baptized. But he committed a sin. Tried to buy the power of the Holy Spirit with money. Peter and John told him he was in the gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. And they told him to repent and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Upon what basis do we continue to be right with God? On the basis, is it on the basis that we, after we become Christians, we're able to 
never sin again? No, it's not on that basis. It's on the basis that we continue throughout our lives to need forgiveness. And that story of, of Acts, the eighth chapter, gives it in proper order. Much of the religious, religious world has turned those sets of pardon upside down. Many say you're saved by faith, you're initially saved by faith, and you're baptized later to join the church of your choice. But the Samaritans believed and were baptized. Simon was one of them, and afterwards he committed to sin. And they told him to repent and pray, and he said, pray for me. And that's the attitude that we must have. Upon whom are we depending when we do those things? We're depending upon God. His strength is not in ourselves. In order to win, we have to continue to be in the winning army, the Lord's army. So let us continue to remember that. Forgiveness is so important. And we, how do we overcome sin? What's the power with which we overcome sin and, and develop the ability not to sin as we maybe have in the past? Jesus gave us the greatest demonstration. How did he do that? You remember in Matthew 4, the devil tempted him. And in each three times, and what did Jesus, how did Jesus reply and answer it in each time? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Each time he said, it is written. And that's how we overcome Satan. It's through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That's the only way, is through the power. And James, in James the first chapter, talks about that. I'll simply refer you to it briefly. But in that passage, he is teaching us that when Satan tempts us, we depend upon God for forgiveness. And that includes our repentance. And prayer to God are asking him and admitting and confessing to him that we have done wrong. And if you need to respond to the invitation tonight in either of those ways. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. He tells us there in James 1 at verse 22. Be doers of the word. If you haven't been doing that so far. Or if you fail, started and then failed, you need to come back and renew that allegiance to the Lord. We bid you to do that as together we stand and sing. Before the cleansing power, you washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul cleansing?
cleansing blood of the Lamb. For your garments spotless are thy white as snow. For you washed in the blood of the Lamb. Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless or thy white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? 